Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 15 this morning. And the Lord appeared to him, meaning Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you've said. And Abraham, went, and Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sayas of flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. And Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your covenant, which expresses the bond of your eternal love for us in the gospel of your Son and in which you care not only for our souls, but for every aspect of our lives. You care even for our families and for the afflictions that we and they must face in the world. In this passage, we see a model of the salvation you work for us, that out of a barren womb and later a virgin's womb and finally a barren tomb, that new life in Jesus has worked for us and in us. And we praise you for so great a salvation. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. You know, we talked about last week that a lot of love songs have, when there's a breakup song, a lot of times it talks about cutting. And it's very significant because the word for covenant is literally... Uh, the root word there is the root word for cut. To cut a covenant is really what God is doing. And so we have songs about heartbreaking. They're nowhere near, don't, 
say, make, uh, see me making an equivalence between words of pop songs and, and the Bible or what God says, but there is an echo of the image of God in love and bonding between people uh, as so with songs that we see, like the first cut is the deepest, it cuts like a knife. Um, if you're from my era, it might sound familiar to you. But then there's the songs that come out about winning the girl back, even after you messed up. For instance, take Stevie Wonder's Signed, Sealed, and Delivered. He's trying to win back the consent of his girl, and we want to ask the question, does he do it? Well, let's see. He says, like a fool, I went and strayed too long. Now I'm wondering if your love's still strong. Oh, baby, here I am, signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. Then that time I went and said goodbye. Now I'm back and not ashamed to cry. Oh, baby, here I am, signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. Does he make the case to win back his girlfriend's heart? Now, if I were this girl's daddy, I'm saying, I think not. This guy is begging for consent, and there's nothing to back up anything he's saying in his promise about being signed, sealed, and delivered. Nothing. It's funny. Those are covenantal terms. Signed, sealed. Covenant is a sign and a seal. It's an outward sign and seal of an inward reality. That's exactly what he's trying to say here. Not, of course, at the... Again, not an equivalence, just a it's difference in degree, but not of kind. So how good is the case that God makes for winning the consent of his people? The fact that God makes a case at all shows his extraordinary grace and patience with us. And the case he makes goes way beyond mere empty promises and words and good intentions. He shows his words of promise by enacting them in the covenant. So the main idea of this passage is that God wins the consent of each one of his covenant people, not just as a whole presenting a general gospel, but to each one individually as well. He wins the consent of his covenant people under his authority. You see, God's not an authoritarian. He's authoritative. There's a big difference. He's not like Allah just commanding and you do. And then, I, oh, I might change my mind because I'm the sovereign God of the universe. That's how Allah operates. He's a God who says, okay, here's the deal. You come with me, there's life. You turn away from me, there's death, but I want your consent. So how does God win his people's consent? He wins their consent by entrusting covenant authority downwardly, by receiving covenant authority upwardly, and then by empowering covenant authority horizontally. First, how does God win the consent of his people? He wins their consent by entrusting covenant authority downwardly, verses 1 through 5. And we see in this that 
you can take it to the bank that God does command, but he also takes delight in our mere effort to obey him. Because we don't do it right still, even as his adopted children. Trust me, we don't know the depths of remaining sin in our hearts. We do know that there is genuine, real love for God there for his children. But it's always mixed in this present evil age with the remaining sin that we have to put to death. But God commands, and he so graciously takes delight in our effort to obey him. And we see this both in his appearing and in his announcing in verses 1 through 5. First, his appearing. We know that when the Lord appears to Abraham, it's a prologue to something big. Now think about that word prologue. Pro means moving toward, and logos, a framework for understanding. So he's moving towards a framework for understanding, a frame of a picture to influence how you see that picture. You ever notice that about frames? I've noticed, you know, that I can buy those. We've had, like, I've had this poster that's on one of those cheap Walmart metal, black metal strips that go around, and then one of them falls off, and you got three sides. There's a big difference between that, and I forget the name of the famous framing company here, but there was one here, I've, to- I've been told, that did the specific, um, now I can't remember the specific name, but the, the specific design out of the particular wood. And you'll see a big, you see how it changes the picture and how you see that picture. That's what God is doing here. There's a particular of his, there are particulars of his watching Abraham here. He first comes, he appears to him, and it's by, it's specific. By the Oaks of Mamre, where, where uh, Abraham has been many times, as he sat by the door of his tent in the heat of the day. This is how much the Lord knows this. Now, what does that suggest to you? First of all, he's very precise. God is a God of history. He's not just a great teacher like Buddha giving great principles, though there is that. But they're great principles because he's the creator of the world and they work out in his world the way he has designed it to work. So history matters. That is one thing that is different about Christianity, Judaism, and even Islam, that there's a history that matters there. But of course, it matters much more so Christianity above all else because we have history culminating in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Indeed, uh, we're still hanging on to this, thank God, that all history is being marked by his life, death, and resurrection before Christ and the year of our Lord. But think about this now. Well, he's in the heat of the day at the door of his tent. What happens in the heat of the day? Don't you get a little sleepy? You think of him napping, maybe. And so Abraham Abraham appears as these men come to his tent. And it's sort of like waking up from being half asleep. And now that we understand, uh, you know, technology and photos about pixels, I always think of my coming out of that half-weary uh, stupor as like the pixels are coming together and then, whoa, I see the picture. And, and out of that napping, he forms a recognition and there are three men there, three. I wonder if that's significant. Now, this is a theophany. I believe this is the appearance of the Lord. I don't want to push the, 
the threeness beyond what it needs, what it's stated here. Um, could it be referring to the Trinity? Possibly. Wouldn't surprise me. But nonetheless, this is the Lord appearing to Abram. Now, again, we sang God moves in a mysterious way. Somehow Abraham, reckon, Abraham recognized this, and we know it by what he says to him. First, we have his announcing. As they appear, he announces to them with a, a recognition of their authority. Oh, Lord, this is not Yahweh. This is Adonai. This is a term of majesty, of seeing him in authority above him. Oh, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight. But it's more than just... because. You can call other people Lord as well, people that are in authority over you. But he, look at what he says. If I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. These mysterious three men, that he somehow knows their identity. Of course, this is the Lord God. And so we see here that Abraham understands grace because he asks, if, if I have found favor in your sight. He's recognizing that it is God's choice, not ours, and that we can't demand God to do anything for us. We have no basis on which to demand that. And yet, at the same time, God encourages us to boldly approach his throne. So we can go boldly, not on the basis of, hey, I've got a bone to pick with you, or I've got a case to make before you. The only way we can make a case before him is in Christ. That Christ won us that privilege. And we see God's people always making cases before him. In fact, that's how he wants us to pray. He wants us deeply engaged with him. But what does he say? Do not pass by. This is the worst nightmare of a believer. It shows that Abram's a true believer, even with all his foibles. Look at what it says in Psalm 51. David praying after his sin with Bathsheba. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And then he says this. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. If that's your biggest fear, then you know you're a child of God. Because an unbeliever doesn't fear this at all. He calls himself your servant. If we're standing before the essence of God, we must see ourselves here first as those who do not deserve this grace. In a parable that Jesus told about this, about actually justification by faith alone, he's explaining that even if you did everything right, even if you lived the most perfect holy life, more holy than even the Apostle Paul, you, have, you still don't have a claim with God because of that. Look at what the... He tells this parable about these servants, and Jesus asks, should they recline at the table with their master? He says, no. No, they should, they should go to their table. And they end up saying, this is what they say, so, Jesus explains it. So also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That's, that just blows self-righteousness out of the water. And we ought to all, and I feel it as I say it. 
We ought to all take that to heart. That even if we did everything right, we got nothing to boast about. We're just giving God what he deserves and what he owes. It's our duty. That's our duty. And God is so good that he sends his son to live our duty for us so that now we're seen in him. And out of that goodness, he wants us to consent. He's saying, look, I'm removing every barrier, every barrier that you could have with me. I'm taking it out of the way. I'm the one that has the beef with you, and I'm taking all of that stuff out of the way so that you can come to me. And what is, how does Abraham respond? He responds with hospitality, which was expected in the ancient Near East to, to treat guests like this. There are welcoming gestures. He talks about let a little uh, water be brought and wash your feet. This is a welcome. They're walking around in the desert. They, got, they don't have like shoes that cover their whole feet and socks and everything. Probably got some kind of sandal and feet get dusty. So uh, cleaning your feet was a way of welcoming. We see this, of course, with Jesus washing the disciples' feet uh, at the the, uh, Passover in John 13. And so Abraham, Abraham has a concern for their comfort out of that welcoming gesture. But there's also honoring fellowship gestures here. He says... While I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, that you may pass on, since you have come to who? Your servant. He's taking care of the guest on all levels. Now, I want to tell you that I was none too pleased when my daughter sitting right there and her sister brought home this second cat that we call Kobe because he came during the COVID uh, time frame showed up at Bellhaven, and they just took pity on him. And he came to live in my house, and it's sort of, and God's not like this, by the way, but I was. I was a grumbling, reluctant, but I'll tell you something. If an animal comes to live in my house, once that animal's there, I take responsibility for that animal's life and and the care and well-being of that animal. Abraham is seeing the grandeur of these people that have come to visit. And it's not some stray cat. But he comes when he wants to, this God, sort of like a cat that way. And he shows up and and Abraham just, Abraham, look at his response. It reminds me of this Bob Dylan song that I put in there for you from his album Saved when he was a professing Christian. And it's a great psalm because it talks about the heart of gratitude and our response to him. You have given everything to me. What can I do for you? Of course, he's singing about God. You have given me eyes to see. What can I do for you? Pulled me out of bondage and you made me renewed inside. Filled up the hunger that had always been denied. Opened up the door no man can shut. And you opened it up so wide and you've chosen me to be among the few. What can I do for you? And that's how Abraham's responding. And guess what? These men, the Lord God delights in watching him obey, watching him serve, receiving his service. They say, do as you have said, and they watch. And it kind of recalls to me, if you remember back in Genesis 2, when God saw, as it says there on your sheet, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground... The Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man, get this, 
to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. God sat back at that moment and watched. Just watched Adam name the animals. And let Adam do the naming, even though God is the greatest authority of all. And so God here is watching Abraham, and he watches us. And he takes great delight at our little paltry obediences, our little paltry efforts. And we never do it perfectly, and we don't deserve praise. But God gives praise anyway. He who doesn't share his glory with another shares that glory with his children in Christ. He watches as we take on his character. Nothing could give him greater delight. He loves it. And that's why he entrusts Abraham and us with his covenant authority to represent him here on earth. So God wins the consent of each and every one of his covenant people under his authority. And he does this by entrusting covenant authority downwardly, which makes this next section even more mind-blowing. He does it also by receiving covenant authority upwardly. The covenant authority that he has entrusted to Abraham, he now receives back from Abraham. And he counts it as meaningful the results of our obedience. Not just our efforts, but the results even that are mixed and not perfect. Allowing Abram to do this on his, on his behalf. And look at Abraham. He kicks it into high gear. Uh, it starts out how Abraham, in verse 2, ran to meet these people. And then when he goes to serve them, you see the word quick one time in verse 6, quickly two times, verses 6 and 7, and ran, including verse 2, two times, uh, verses 2 and 7. And he runs in and he commands Sarah which actually shows a lot of trust in their relationship. He is the head. Sarah is not balking or chafing at his headship as the man. And by the way, if you've heard anything, this is about winning the consent. That is the responsibility of the head, just like God wins our consent. So submission in the uh, male-female relationship in marriage uh, with the female submitting to the husband is not a dirty word. Otherwise, you're calling what God did here dirty. He goes in and he says, quickly. He runs to the tent and says, quick. And he tells her what to make and how to make it. <laughs> and you can tell that Sarah is really, truly a believer. Now, we, she struggled just like any woman would. But look, she, she doesn't resist his commands. Like Christ in the church, we shouldn't resist Christ's commands. That's the picture here. And she even calls him, if you look down at verse 12 real quick, we'll get there, but I'm not going to explain this part. She calls Abraham what? Abraham what? My Lord. And Peter picks up on this when he talks about the pattern for how Christian women should live. He says in 2 Peter 3, 5 and 6, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. 
So if you want to see the mark of your growth as a woman in Christ, again, these are approximations. Sarah didn't do this perfectly. Neither will you. But if you want to see marks of growth, look for these things to be growing in you. And we see Abraham commanding his men also. He ran to the herd and and he's even involved in it because he finds that, that calf tender and good Gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. The man just knew he's got to do it. He could tell. This is the trust that Abraham Abraham had built by the way he led. He didn't just command from on high and sit back and lay back and just, you know, peel me a grape, bring me a drink, bring me the paper, let me watch the game. Sometimes you do have to do that, but just out of earthly wisdom. But... That's not to be, that shouldn't characterize a man's leadership in the home. Nor with the, with the people he leads. Charles Spurgeon said the sheep aren't driven, they're led. And a lot of times the sheep resist because they're scared. And we're going to see this with Sarah in a minute. So the young man goes and he prepares it quickly. And we see this earned trust play out. Because Abraham was involved. He went out there and he... He knew what to, what to get and, and was just unspoken. The man knew what to do. And then what does Abraham do? He's also, you know, I'm reminded of that, that ruler that said to Jesus, you know, you can just say the word and my son will be healed or my servant will be healed. I am a man under authority with people under my authority. And that's how Abraham is behaving here. He stands there and, and waits for them waiting on them like a waiter in a restaurant. He stood by them under the tree. In Luke 22, Jesus says this about himself, for who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Jesus deserved to recline at the table, but what does he say? It is not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. And they eat the food. The men eat the food and their satisfaction in what Abraham did is seen by Abraham. He stood by the tent while they ate. I remember when I was 10 years old, I went on a school field trip to the state fair in Florida. My dad gave me 20 bucks. He said, Give, bring me back change. Like, laid it on the line and made an impression on me. So I brought him back 10 bucks. And my dad got it. He just laughed. He wasn't expecting that much. Whoa, would that I had known. But he was happy with my self-discipline. He really was. That's why he was laughing. He wasn't laughing at me. He was laughing for joy. What kind of motivation would it be to see the Lord satisfied? Satisfied with your obedience. He does that in Christ. God is letting us in on seeing that here. God sees and counts as meaningful not only your effort, but the results of your effort to obey Him. He receives our covenant authority upwardly to Him as done for Him in the context of our own history. The authority of God is entrusted to us and then received by Him. What a gracious God. So... God wins the consent of each one of his covenant people under his authority. How does he win their consent? He wins their consent 
by entrusting covenant authority downwardly, by receiving covenant authority upwardly, and we, when we get our relationship with him right, then our earthly relationships start to go more smoothly too. Not perfectly, because he cares for everything about us and around us. So he empowers covenant authority horizontally. God cares for each and each one he graciously, graciously received under covenant authority. Now remember, he had just appeared to Abraham and went through this whole rigmarole about Abraham laughing that Sarah's going to be pregnant and he gave the case that they were old. Sarah gives the same case here. But he announces for Sarah's sake in verses 9 and 10. And we see this care of our covenant authority and how deeply he is concerned for those under our care. As a husband, as a father, as a pastor, there is great relief for me that he blesses my paltry, measly attempts at obedience in prayer. And he sets Sarah apart. She's not just any old person under Abraham's command. He says, where first? God's always looking for his people, remember? Where are you, Adam? He's always looking for his people. He calls, where is Sarah by name? Your wife. She's significant. More significant than the man who made the goat. Way more significant. And for Abraham, he can sit back and say, God is looking after me. As he responds, she's in the tent. And, letting, and then it, God lets Sarah hear. Abraham had heard this, as we said. I'm going to return to you next year. Surely I will return. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind. See, this is a junior-senior partnership. It's not the same as you're to be in submission. Not that kind of feel. But we're alongside, and the husband leads by looking out for and watching the gifts of his wife and having, building that trust that he could, when he needs to, he could go in and command when it's an emergency or, uh, or a time that she needs to respond. She needs to trust him and do that. But that shouldn't be the character of their whole relationship. In fact, it should be much more broad. The ultimate authority here of God is exercise for empowerment. That's how leadership works. We want to empower and see the results. Because God brought the animals to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever name the man gave, that's what they were, that's what they were called. He also allows faith, though, the Lord does, for, for Sarah's faith, space for Sarah's faith. First of all, she's got this fallen head space. Verse 11 is actually her reasoning. It's given in an objective way, but that's what's going on in her head. And it's the same exact reasoning that Abram, Abraham had in seven, verse 17 of chapter 17. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? They're old, advancing years. We've heard this over and over again. She's, the way of woman, women had ceased with her. That's God's objective. He's letting you know this is the truth. She can't have a child unless I intervene. And guess what? God's his own interpreter. We look at her and we say she's barren. The way of women is it's gone. It's gone. And if we're just up to us in this world the way it is now, that's exactly right. The science would say she is barren. She cannot bear a child. But God says, 
I'm my own interpreter of this thing. And just like that barren womb that I can call life out of, just like that virgin's womb that I can place life in, and just like that barren tomb that I can call new life out of, I will bring a child to this woman. God indeed is his own interpreter. What does he say in verse 14? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Really? Really? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Make no mistake, God's got this. God's got this. He will live up to his word. And here's the test. This time next year. And Sarah has this shame because he caught her laughing. She denied it, saying, I did not laugh. For why? She was afraid. And God even gives space for that. God deals with that shame. It's a bit fearful. It's direct. There's no wiggle room here. He said, no, but you did laugh. You need to deal with that. Sarah, you need to trust me. Now, he's not. Look, he could have closed the door right then and said, look, that's your unbelief. I'm done with you. That's how God is. He's winning the consent of those under his authority. He says, I'm not rejecting you. The plan is still on. So Abraham has seen God delighting in his small attempts at obedience. And he, enjoy, he saw God enjoy the food he prepared. And God let him see it. Is that not motivation? And now he lets Sarah work through her doubts, her shame, her fears, and still receives her and will continue with the plan with her. God has empowered Abraham's and Sarah's family, their faith, individually, and in bringing them together. Abraham's headship brought blessings to Sarah, and she knows it. And that's why she calls him my Lord. Abraham had won her heart. God had won her heart. Not like Stevie Wonder's pleading. God signs, seals, and delivers. Christ says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Stevie Wonder said, after I left and strayed. I will make you radiant, says in Ephesians 6. That's the purpose, to bring out your best. Like Sarah, shall I experience pleasure? The model of leadership is not driving, but leading, and then going back and consoling and counseling and working through together. Yes, it takes more time, but love is not efficient. Love is not efficient. Love takes the time necessary, because God wants not just your behavior. He wants it all. He wants your heart. So when your man falls down on the job, Jesus still steps in and he's still got you because he's got his bride, all of us, the church, leading with consent of his people under his authority. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, how much do you really care for us? How much? You not only care that we all get the content of your salvation in Christ alone, but that we get the joy of your salvation. And not only us, but our relations and all who would hear of your great covenant love, expressing your eternal love for your people, 
which you had even before the foundation of the world. Thank you for so great a salvation. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen.